Hi, joining me today is Eric Smith. He is a visiting scholar of politics and society here at the Cato Institute and an associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. Although he has eclectic scholarly interests, his primary work focuses on the rhetoric of anti-racist activism, theory, uh, diversity, and pedagogy, as well as the role of rhetoric in a free, pluralistic, and civil society. His most recent book is a critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition, the semblance of empowerment. And we're going to discuss uh, rhetoric surrounding racial issues, attempts to address racism, and his thoughts on both the current uh, problems and the most effective way forward to promote genuine empowerment, respect, empathy, justice, civility, curiosity, and so on. Uh, Eric, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm well. Um, so before we get into what you see as the current problems and solutions, could you just give an overview of the kinds of changes and trends that we've seen in recent years in regards to the rhetoric used to discuss race and race relations and racism, attempts to address racism, in the United States? Um, I think the biggest difference is our inability to talk across differences. Um, people have stopped even trying uh, these days. You'll, you'll often hear that uh, people who have the um, most uh, radical ideas refuse to explain them or debate those ideas. Um, that's not always because they're afraid. Uh, it's often because they don't see the point in it. Um, they don't see the benefit of it. They think it's a waste of time. And they also think it may be dignifying the other side with a response, right? So that's where we are now. We've gone from arguing to not talking at all. I prefer to argue. What are some of the ways that the rhetoric has shifted? Because just in my lifetime, I mean, I feel like there's been a big shift in how people talk about these things. It used to be, and this is now very old fashioned, that people would focus on a sort of colorblind uh, worldview where they'd say things like, uh, you know, treat everyone the same, race doesn't matter. And now there's more of a shift towards seeing race as a very critical part of one's identity and uh, seeing that as more significant. So just the way people have talked, uh, have started talking about these things is has changed as a non-rhetoric person. That's what I've noticed. But I'm curious, as an expert in this, how you would describe this big shift we're seeing and how people are talking about these things. Well, first of all, I have to say that it saddens me to think that colorblindness is old-fashioned. Uh, I, I, I think that's a, a mistake. And if it is old-fashioned, we need to, we need we need to bring it back. Um, the Difference between colorblindness and how it's conceived today and how it was conceived five, six years ago um, is that colorblindness is seen as not seeing someone's color at all. By extension, not seeing racism. That's not the case. Colorblindness simply means whether I like you or not, doesn't depend on your skin color. It's other aspects, you know, it's other parts of your uh, personality, your character and things like that. That's all it's ever meant. Um, the spinning of this into not seeing race at all, um, which really means not caring about race or racism, that is a, a strategic uh, tactic uh, used to gain power and, um, you know, uh, kind of wrestle 
power from people who they perceive as having it all the time. So it's it's a tactic, really. The people who say colorblindness means you're not seeing racism, they know you're seeing racism. Right? This is a rhetorical strategy for their own purposes. So that's what's going on there. A lot of this is, you know, basic, you know, politics, um, you know, um, rhetorical tactics, fallacies, right? Used purposely to wrestle power from others. And the people who are proponents of that would see this wrestling of power as a good thing that's equalizing people? Um, I suppose so, yes. Um, it's it's the old ideas of talking things through and things like that. They have little faith in that. Um, the major players in critical race theory will tell you they've lost faith in uh, liberal values like uh, reason and, and, and dialogue and things like that. They're not doing anything. If anything, they maintain the status quo. And I can sympathize with that. You know, it gets frustrating when changes don't come uh, quickly enough, changes that shouldn't, you know, um, be waited for at all, right? Um, so I, I I get that. At the same time, if you get rid of those things, if you get rid of a belief in deliberation, uh, the primacy of reason, um, you, society would just devolve into something even worse, right? And um, a lot of people don't seem to mind that. They they think society, society needs to fall in order to be rebuilt into something better. I, I believe in reform. Um, I, I believe in the power of rhetoric. Well, I'm not just saying that because I get paid to believe in the power of rhetoric. I, I do believe in it. I, I believe in the um, you know efficacy of conversation and civil debate. And that's why I'm fighting for it. That's why I'm here at Cato. Right. Obviously, we're both working at a think tank because we believe in the power of ideas and words yeah. to change the world. Um, but OK, so let's. So there's been this big rhetorical shift. Um, but before we get into your thoughts on solutions, what do you see as some of the problems with the current rhetoric? Um, it's disempowering. Um, and I've been a broken record about this for the last uh, four or five years. What they're calling empowerment uh, is really disempowerment um, and microaggressions, for example. And anything can cause harm. Now these days, that's not an empowering thing, you know, um, to be told and to believe that there's harm around every corner, that words are harm, that if somebody asks a question, it's always already racist. Critical social justice is really the ideological driver of all of this. People say critical race theory, but it's really uh, critical social justice more accurately. And the primary tenet of critical social justice is this. The question isn't, did racism happen? It's how did it manifest in that situation, right? So racism is always already in the air. It's always already a part of a conversation. Somehow this is racist, our conversation right now, you know, somehow, right? Um, that is a problem. But of course, if you're trying to usurp power and you're using the evil of racism, then the more racism, the better for you. Right. Um, which is why you get people who are making twenty thousand dollars to talk for an hour or, or or half an hour via Zoom. Right. You get Kendi proposing a department 
uh, of anti-racism at, at a government level, which, you know, in order to justify such a department, you need racism, right? So this is the issue going on here. It's a, it's, it's, it's ultimately disempowering to empower a very small group of people. Let's get into your book, A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, The Semblance of Empowerment. Um, the first section uh, deals with the primacy of identity, uh, the sacred victim, in your words, mm -hmm. and the semblance of empowerment. So let's unpack those one by one. Uh, what do you mean by the primacy of identity? It's all about me and who I am. Right. Um, it's not about higher ideals. Uh, it's not about other people's experiences. It's about I am fill in the blank, hear me roar. Right. Um, so which is to say, you know, you, there, there are certain things that come with that. Like you can't really ask questions. Right. When somebody tells a story, you can't ask questions. You can't you can't say, well, wait a minute. This part doesn't make sense because you're basically saying they don't make sense. Right. It's all about the person, not that person's ideas. So if you critique a person's essay, you're critiquing that person, right? Um, if you propose a policy that is um, not ideal for a certain person, you're attacking that person, right? It's all about the person and not ideas and not experiences and, and, and things like that. Uh, so that's what the privacy of identity is. And by extension, you can't ask questions. Um, you have to always believe stories um, instead of, um, you know, uh, asking for elaboration or clarification or, or something like that. Um, and the more downtrodden you are, the more downtrodden intersections you have, right? Um, uh, the more, be the more ethos you have, right? The more credibility you have. So I'm black and that gives me credibility, but if I'd have more credibility if I was a black woman. I'd have more credibility if I was a black woman who was disabled, you see how it's going, right? So that's what I mean by the primacy of identity. Right. That's part of that big rhetorical shift we were talking about. I know you also wrote a book about um, the politics of persuasion and uh, Barack Obama. And famously, there was a time when a bunch of his supporters were chanting race doesn't matter when they were supporting him. And that's very far from the current rhetoric where identity, uh, your yes. identity in terms of how you belong to different groups is considered more and more significant. And we're now at the point where, you know, there are there was a special on Sesame Street, which is aimed at very young children, where the puppet characters were saying uh, that race is a very important part of who you are, uh, which is about that primacy of identity. Are there mm -hmm. any examples, though, that you'd like to note about how we're seeing this shift toward placing identity into a more important um, location. My biggest issue is the essentializing that goes on, right? Um, people saying, well, Sesame Street saying, well, race is a huge part of people's identities. Says who, right? Um, nobody asked me about that. Is, is that a general consensus across uh, uh, all groups, all races, uh, things like that? Uh, there's this idea that, you know, all Black people think the same. All Black people agree with that idea. That is not the case at all. So to be told, to hear somebody telling people about me, right, um, without my say or anything like that, is it's not just insulting, it's scary. 
right? Because you're having something projected onto you based on an immutable quality, your race, which is technically in the old sense of the term, racism, right? Uh, so so that's the uh, mind blowing aspect of all of this to me. Tell me about uh, what you call the sacred victim. Yes. So um, this is by no means my idea. The sacred victim is, um, you know, something that's been talked about for decades, really, um, if not much longer. Uh, this idea that, you know, of being the victim, you know, um, being the underdog, you know, gives you this kind of special status. Right. Um, you're you're always uh, centered because you're the victim to the point where being a victim is beneficial in a, a lot of situations. Right. Uh, the 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 victim is everything. Right. I'm being victimized. Therefore, I am the protagonist in this story. Therefore, you need to listen to me or else you're a bad person. You're a victimizer otherwise. Right. So that intertwines a bit with the primacy of identity as well if you can prove that you're somehow a victim then you can get a lot of out out of that it's, 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 it's a benefit right it's a strategic ploy so that's what i mean by that hmm. so then you go on to talk about the semblance of empowerment which is obviously a very important part of your work it's the subtitle of the book what mm -hmm. do you mean by the semblance the mere semblance of empowerment well um it goes back to the sacred victim. Um, if you can prove your victimization, um, then it gives you a sense of power, right? Which uh, seems to contradict itself, right? It doesn't seem, um, it seems counterintuitive and mainly because it is, right? But but in in presenting yourself as powerless, you're gaining, you feel like you're gaining power, right? Um, in my field, particularly, students are being told that they're being oppressed by being taught standard English, right? This is a valuable tool, right? Um, it's not replacing a dialect. You're adding a dialect so that you can have it if it does come in handy, which it probably will in civic and, and professional contexts. So you're disempowering them by telling them that this valuable tool is a bad thing. Right. So that's a specific thing going on in my field. One of the many ways that students are actually being disempowered. So it feels like you're sticking it to the man, but really you're you're hurting yourself. So it's a semblance of empowerment. So what is true empowerment as you would define it? Um, I abide by empowerment theory, which is a psychological and um, sociological. Well, it's, it's used in social work as well a um, idea and methodology um, and a process and an outcome um, that defines empowerment as the confluence of three components. The intrapersonal, which is all about, you know, um, your intrinsic value, your intrinsic motivation, how you talk to yourself. Um, that's how I render it as a rhetorician, um, how we are uh, the nature of our internal dialogue to help us self-manage, self-regulate, um, manage our emotions, be self-aware, mindful, and things like that. Hmm. The second one is interactive or interactional uh, empowerment. And that is just knowing your context, knowing the values, attitudes, and beliefs of a particular context and acting accordingly. Now, if you have your interpersonal empowerment intact, 
you're better able to be uh, interactional uh, with your empowerment because you're 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 there and you're present. You're not projecting other things onto the present situation. Uh, you're not projecting your repressions and your anxieties onto something. You're there as open as possible, open mind, heart, and will, um, as I as I like to say. The third component of empowerment is behavioral empowerment, which basically means how do we work together to get along? How do we work together to uh, to produce uh, generative uh, benefits to everyone involved? How do we notice our superordinate goals, the goals that we have in common, although we may be very different? And how do we work together? If you have the intrapersonal and the interactional components of empowerment intact, you are better able to do the behavioral. Now, according to this theory, you need all three to be truly empowered. And I think that's missing from a lot of DEI work, a lot of anti-racist pedagogy um, and activism outside uh, of the classroom. I think that is being uh, totally ignored. And I think that's a problem, especially the intrapersonal component. Um, even the, the, the most well-intentioned diversity trainers skip that one. Right. It's all about how do we get along with other people? We're not asking how do we get along with ourselves? How do we understand ourselves first and foremost so that we know who's interacting with those other people? We know the buttons that can be pushed and how they can be pushed and to be aware of that, you know, self-awareness. Right. Um, we, we need to look at that first and foremost. And we're not doing that. So that's what I mean by empowerment. Hmm. I think that's very profound. And you mentioned pedagogy. Could you tell me about yeah. disempowerment and what you call code meshing uh, pedagogy? Um, well, that's not my term either. Um, code meshing, um, it, it, it means something different in, in linguistics and rhetoric and composition. It basically means putting two dialects together, using them simultaneously. Uh, there's the term Spanglish. I don't know if you've heard that. As there's uh, people who uh, who go back and forth uh, Spanish and English, that that's code meshing, right? And, and the idea is that uh, we should allow students to code mesh, you know, um, in in every situation. My thing, and the thing of anybody who rightly calls himself or herself a rhetorician, is that whether you code mesh or not depends on the audience and your message. But it depends on the rhetorical situation. Right. Uh, there will be times where code meshing is the best way to go if you want to be as persuasive as possible. That's what rhetoric is all about. Persuasion. There are times when it won't help you. Right. You have to discern that and act accordingly. Now, the idea uh, with a lot of uh, anti-racist pedagogy is that discerning the rhetorical situation and acting accordingly is to succumb to oppression. Right. You're, you're succumbing to white supremacy by doing that. You're, you're not thinking rhetorically, right? You have a colonized mind and that's why you're doing that. This is all absurd, right? Um, the point is to gauge your situation and act accordingly. Right, the education's not as productive if you're doing it in that way. Um, can you tell me about what you call, and again, I'm not suggesting these are terms you invented, but what you refer to as the soft bigotry of anti-racist pedagogy? Yes. Well, the biggest example of that 
is, uh, well, the most egregious, I guess, in my mind, is the equitable math movement, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this idea that, you know, expecting Black students to get the right answer is inherently racist. You should reward them for trying, you know? Um, and that's just one of the egregious tenets of equitable math, right? Um, teaching, the, 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 the teacher knowing the, the knowledge and um, instilling it into the students, that's somehow racist mm -hmm. as well because it's paternalistic. Um, yeah, I mean, those are just two of the, the, the more uh, mind-blowing tenets of equitable math. That is a soft bigotry of anti-racist pedagogy, right? Um, I think the students can get the right answer, um, perhaps their teachers need to do a better job of teaching them, not not teaching them and calling it teaching. Right. Um, so that's just one uh, example of what I mean by that. There are others as well in, in various different fields. Um, but yes, it's this uh, this this demonization of rigor and merit when it comes to students of color, not other students. Right. I think that if by equity in math or education, what is meant is raising everyone up to the same level and eliminating disparities that way, everyone agrees with that. But what we're seeing, uh, what you just described is actually saying, well, we can't raise everyone up to this same level of scoring. So we're just going to take away advanced classes in some cases. How widespread is that though? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I've heard stories from teachers and administrators that, you know, their their schools are being taken over by this idea. Um, but those are just the people I know, right? Those are just the people who I've met and and, and talked to and things like that. I, I don't know how widespread this is. I mean, you can you can go online and find several articles about this happening in actual schools across the country. Mm -hmm. But how many? I I honestly don't know. Where I live in Northern Virginia, you see a lot of headlines about this with local schools. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the main stories is also that um, the percentage of Asian students at some schools is actually going to be lowered, it seems, under some policies in the name of racial equity. Um, do you have any comments on that? Yes, um, it's it's embarrassing. Um, as a uh, as a black person, that that's happening. Um, I um, I talked about this in front of the um, you know Supreme Court building, not wasn't inside um, uh, about this idea and about the fact that all this is being done in black people's name, right? Um, my biggest fear is that in the very near future, somebody's going to say, "Why?" What, why did they just try to get rid of all the Asian students? Why did they ignore the uh, accomplishments of all those students? What happened? And my biggest fear is the answer being, well, they had to let the black kids in somehow. Uh, they had to have the black kids, uh, you know, um, maintain some kind of dignity somehow, right? So it's being done for us, right? These, these students who are working hard, uh, who deserve um, the, uh, you know, accolades uh, of being at the top of their class. Uh, they deserve the rewards for that, uh, scholarships and things like that. They're not getting it because we're so dumb, right? I mean, that's basically the message. 
And um, I, I can't have that. I mean, if anything, if I could only fight against one thing right now, it would probably be that. Yeah, that's an incredibly disempowering message. Um, right. So you also have a, a chapter um, where you discuss what you call the victims, the tricksters, and the protectors. So tell me about that division. Who are the victims, who are the tricksters, and who are the protectors? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that chapter. <laughs> Let me think about it. the The victims. We talked about the victims already. Yeah. Um, the sacred victim and how there's kind of a, a sense of power and um, self-victimization. Um, the tricksters are the people who, I guess people would call them cynics uh, as well. Um, Kenneth Burke would call them, you know, uh, people working through the tragic frame. These are people who know this is absurd, but they're doing it anyway because they can gain power uh, from it. Grifters, they're also called. That's what I mean by that. So, you know, um, there are people in my field who, I mean, who are fighting against racism, but the last thing they want is for racism to end, right? Their whole career is that. They won't have anything else to write. They don't want it to go away. They want it to perpetuate, right? That's what I mean by uh, the tricksters. And the protectors, that's a very specific thing. Uh, the protectors are the people who... Uh, um, uh, white people, or at least non-Black people, who are uncomfortable with educated Black people. I've had, uh, on several occasions, white people um, express their discomfort with the fact that I have a command of standard English. You know, that's a white thing. So they're trying to protect the 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 white thing, right? They're trying to protect what whiteness means. You know, but if I do it better than they do, then, you know, what's the point? Right. So that's what I mean by protectionism. Um, I don't talk about that one um, very much. I, I mentioned it in that chapter and then moved away from it um, because I feel like in order to really treat it, I got to get some more uh, more evidence other than my anecdotal um, you know, uh, work. I, I have other evidence of it as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's often called uppity. Right. Uh, the term was uppity in, in, in the past and it happened a lot more you know, um, decades ago than it is now, but it's still going on. So I, I, I want to get more real data about that before I dive into it. That makes sense. Um, you also, uh, in your conclusion, you you call your conclusion getting over ourselves and centering empowerment. Tell me about that. You need over, well, what I meant by that is like, the privacy of identity. Uh, you're not over yourself. You're you're way too into yourself. A lot of this is narcissistic in nature. So if we can uh, get over, you know, um, our own petty issues and look at the bigger picture here, what's good for society as a whole, then we can start moving in the right direction. Um, that's what I mean uh, by that. Hmm. Thinking back to when I was growing up again, I think there was still rhetoric about the self and finding yourself and that kind of thing. Sure. But there wasn't so much rhetoric about identity. It was more about finding yourself as an individual, mm -hmm. I think. Um, that yeah. You're the rhetoric expert. Have you noticed a shift in that direction? Yes. Um, it was about self-awareness, mindfulness. 
being uh, mindful of your emotions, what triggers your emotions, uh, being able to manage those ideas. That's what it was about. Um, now it's, I am part of this race, so I get to say this, that, and the other thing. And you have to believe me because you're part of that race, right? Um, it's kind of, it's identity as ethos or race as ethos. That's different from identity as knowing who you are. Now it's identity as I have credibility in this situation, right? And you don't. It's about right? So that's that's identity. a big difference. What's that? It's about group identity. Yes. Or group yes, membership. it is. About group identity. It's about group essentialism. Hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. And you also devote a part at the end of the book, uh, which I think is refreshingly humble, uh, where you ask, are you overreacting? And you request inputs. Um, what kind of input have you received since publication of the book? I'm curious. Um, not much directly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've gotten some emails uh, and, and things like that. I've gotten uh, people coming up to me and saying, I, I can't, I, I, this book was a godsend because I thought I was going insane, right? Uh, turns out my intuition was, you know, correct based on your book. So thank you very much for that. It's been a breath of fresh air for a lot of people. Um, but that being said, the book's not talked about very much uh, in the field. Um, uh, I think that's by design. You know, um, even even talking about how bad the book is, is dignifying it with a response. So the idea is to ignore its existence completely, including my existence, ignoring that uh, completely as well. So I haven't gotten much feedback about this book, but the feedback I've gotten has been overwhelmingly good. So it sounds like you were probably not overreacting. Is that uh, your conclusion at this point? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, let's get more into solutions. So you sketched out some of the problems with the shifts we've seen mm-hmm. in rhetoric. Uh, what kind of rhetoric would you like to see more of to promote genuine empowerment and respect and tolerance and human progress? Um. Two things. One, I want to instill the empowerment theory I was talking about earlier um, and have people, you know, uh, develop heuristics for exploring oneself, exploring one's environment and understanding it and working together, collaborating. Um, And all this overlaps substantially with um, emotional intelligence as well, uh, especially obviously self-awareness, social awareness, relationship management, uh, teamwork. Um, and and all the uh, competencies uh, therein. But also, I think we need to reemphasize and make explicit classical liberal values. I think classical liberalism is social justice if you do it right, right? Um, Especially the primacy of reason, individuality, uh, free speech, the concept of a deliberative democracy. I think all these things uh, need to be re-emphasized, and we, we, there needs to be a, a a an explicit movement to do that. Right? We don't just uh, talk about it. We don't just assume that it's in the air like we've been doing. Right? Um, we have to assume that people don't know about it, and to be upfront and direct about the value of um, these ideas, um, especially individuality and, and and free speech, especially now since we. We're um, steep in this race essentialism going on and the idea that, you know, um, words are violence, 
those get in the way of classical liberal values and therefore in the way of uh, pluralistic and civil societies. So we have to be explicit about that. So empowerment theory and the renaissance, if you will, of classical liberalism. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you mentioned something interesting there about this rhetorical shift and its relationship to uh, attacks on free speech or hampering dialogue. Could you expand on that? Um, attacks on free speech and hampering dialogue, yes. Um, again, microaggressions. You know, um, if you ask somebody what they do for a living, uh, it can be construed as racist. And then in, in certain contexts, maybe it is, you know, um, but not in every situation. And people are taking it as every situation. So now if words are violence, if, um, you know, uh, children's books are being uh, censored, there's, there's a trigger warning for Peter Pan now. Um, there's a, a, a class um, I just read about this this morning. Uh, the a professor put a trigger warning for uh, Peter Pan because it may bring up some, um, you know, issues with gender that may uh, offend adult readers, right? Um, Beowulf, uh, it may uh, offend people because of animal cruelty, right? Grindel is an animal of sorts. So, you know, the, things like that are, are not helping anyone. Right. And if we abide by this, if everything is harmful, right, then obviously that's going to affect the way we communicate. We're going to be afraid to say certain things. Right. And people will stop communicating because why even risk it? Right. A lot of the implicit bias trainings make things worse because people learn that they should just shut up. Right. They don't they don't learn anything other than that. I'm just going to be quiet. That's the best bet here. Right. So people are talking less. And and uh, I think that's a huge problem in a country that is has been self-defined as a place of free speech. You know, um, we're, we're losing that. We can't lose that. We'll lose ourselves. What are your thoughts on also policing uh, very specific you know, terms or words that previously were considered unproblematic things like I've, I've seen in lists of words that, that people say are now insensitive things like uh you know master bedroom or chess master this is supposed to make uh be potentially insensitive because it could mm -hmm. make people think of slavery i've seen calls to eliminate words like craftsmen and change it to craftspeople. otherwise it could be offensive to women um all of these ever more granular uh, criticisms of word choice. Uh, this seems to be a growing trend, uh, again, from my outsider perspective, not being a specialist in rhetoric. Yes. Um, and I mean, field now, have you heard this one? Field is bad. You can't go out into the field as a social worker because that reminds people of the field in which slaves were uh, you're oh. picking cotton and, and, and things like that. So it's it's getting egregious. Now, the people who are putting these things out there Many of them know how absurd this is. This is another way of usurping power, right? If we can make the tiniest thing offensive, uh, then people will be tiptoeing around everything. And we can really, we can control people who are walking on eggshells all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the uh, strategy behind 
that I don't think is really picking up. Um, the last couple of instances I've heard about this, people kind of walked it back later on after the uh, backlash um, and the absurdities that are clear in, in those kind of uh, proposed policies anyway. Um, you can, again, I mean, you can take any word and figure out how it could be offensive to somebody. You know, um, you don't even have to go too far into its etymology, you know, uh, to do that. You can just find a situation where uh, it was used in a certain way and say, well, this this is offensive to this group of people. You know, um, you, you can, it's a gift that keeps on giving in that respect. Um, and it's ultimately disempowering. If words have that much of an effect on people, then that is not a very empowered group of people at all. That's a, that's a very uh, weak group of people, right? A, a group of people that is easy to topple. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, that's the point. I think that is a good segue into the piece you just wrote for Cato on adaptation, uh, where you talk about this trend in education uh, that you describe as basically making students more fragile instead of teaching them to adapt and succeed in the world. And it ends with the line, happy and successful people don't revolt. And one's ability to adapt correlates to one's ability to be happy and successful. Uh, could you tell me about that piece and what's going on with rhetoric in in education? I mean, you've said many times uh, people are intentionally using this to, uh, you know, gain control. But, but what's the, the purpose of this? What's going on? Well, um, adaption, adaptation means maybe you look at a situation and say, okay, I'm going to adapt my, my wording, my language, my references to this group so that I can, you know, uh, get to them, you know, as clearly as possible. Right. Um, adaptation is considered a bad thing. It's considered you're you're um, submitting right to to a situation. Right. You're uh, you're um, condescending or, or you're being condescended to by this audience who expects you to 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 talk in a certain way. That's how it's being looked at. It's being looked at as a a, um, a a lack of dignity for the speaker. Uh, a dignified person speaks the way he wants to speak all the time. Damn it, right? Uh, adaptation to ask a, to ask a black person to adapt is white supremacy, right? Um, because uh, that black person that black person's home language, which is definitely uh, black English, because he's black, right? Uh, these are these are the ideas that are going on in my field right now, and um, unfortunately, you know they're picking up speed. Um, and uh, I think it's a bad thing. Adaptation is about gauging a situation and acting accordingly. And the more tools you have for communication, the easier it is to adapt. Right. Um, so education and rhetoric is a way of helping people navigate their way through the world and negotiate situations uh, to the best of their ability. But if you say that very negotiation is just succumbing to white supremacy, then you're again disempowering people, right? And you are you're more likely to have them be unhappy and unsuccessful, and therefore willing to revolt. So, is that the motivation? Then there's a 
political or ideological motivation where teachers want students to oppose certain institutions or policies and by disempowering them in this way, they can uh, persuade them to join their ideological movement. Yes, I, mean, I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but um, I, I've written about this a couple of times. There's a a um, a uh, figure in my field, a very prominent figure, who basically said, you know, um, black students who want to learn standard English to write in standard English are being selfish and immature, because if they learn that, they will have a skill that will help them succeed in a system that is bad. So that success will perpetuate this bad system. It will maintain the status quo, right? So, and 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 that's a bad thing. So they're they're being selfish and immature, and those students should want to not write in standard English, right? Uh, to to topple the status quo, right? So, uh, and that that was expressed clearly. I can uh, I have a, a couple of articles in which I link to a video of or audio rather of the person saying. Uh, these things. So yes, it's it's a real thing, especially in my field. Yeah, I don't think it's a, it even sounds that much like a conspiracy theory to say that people try to persuade other people to share their worldview. I think that's just a commonly yeah. known fact of human nature. Yes. Um, now tell me about Free Black Thought, which is a project um, you're involved with that tries to push back against some of these negative trends. Yes, especially race essentialism. Mm -hmm. um, Free Black Thought is an organization and, a, and an online journal um, that tries to showcase viewpoint diversity among Black people, right? Especially Black Americans, but really the Black diaspora. And, and um, we do this because there's this idea that, all, that Black people are a monolith. They all think the same. They all uh, have the same beliefs, the same values same attitudes, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. So that's the point of that um, organization. We have an online journal in which we try to publish um, viewpoints um, from Black people, but also about Black people from people who may not be Black. I mean, we, we accept that too. That uh, tries to uh, put forth ideas that you don't hear from Black people or about Black people in mainstream media. So that's uh, what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, create a curricula uh, for uh, schools. We're trying to uh, create podcasts. We have a newsletter uh, coming out very soon. We're, we're trying to grow the organization, but that's what it is right now. That's fascinating. Um, you have uh, a speech, if people Google you, they can find this on YouTube, where you talk about turning haters into motivators. <laughs> Um, this is obviously an extremely fraught and contentious topic to be working in. You are in academia, which, yeah. you know, leans uh, more towards some of the ideas that you're opposing. And it must be very difficult. So how do you find the uh, the motivation to pursue classical liberalism and these ideas that, uh, unfortunately, in some circles have fallen out of favor? Well, um, the haters and the motivators thing, um, I, 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 I didn't mean to do that, right? Um, a few years ago, I was attacked um, uh, on a, um, the, the prominent listserv in my field uh, for saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't discourage students from 
learning standard English, maybe say that the very presence of white professors is a problem. Um, and this would, these are things that were said in a keynote address at a conference uh, like the day before. I was attacked for that. And I was attacked by people who I thought were my friends. I was attacked by uh, people who I thought were colleagues. Um, uh, people were lying about me and things like that. And I took that frustration and anger and channeled it into uh, creating all the things I've created since. Uh, two books, um, my work with Free Black Thought, uh, several articles, uh, all kinds of different things. Um, so instead of having all that silence me, which was the point, instead of having all that discourage me, which was the point, I spun it into being louder and encouraged. And uh, that's what I mean by um, haters or motivators, right? So, uh, so that's 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 how I I keep going. Whenever I get tired, I just think of all the people who, you know, uh, tried to hurt me, and I I say, well, uh, I'll show them, and here I am. I think cultivating that kind of spirit—that's true empowerment. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Eric. Everyone, check out his work. Uh, it's fascinating. We'll link in the description of this podcast his book and that article he just wrote for Cato. Thank you once again. This has been fascinating. Thank you. This is great.